from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Well, thank you all very much uh, for the great turnout. Um, I think everybody came for the reception. In fact, I think I know everyone came for the reception and the fellowship. In fact, uh, Space Kate, who is a longtime friend, Kate Arkless, sitting here on the second row, uh, I decided I would call her out tonight because uh, as the president and I were talking on the way down the steps about challenges these days, Martin mentioned the fact that while the society has been very good uh, for wow, almost 150 years, um, we're all concerned about the lack of uh, youthful involvement, and it seems like Kate's generation doesn't seem to be joiners uh, as we remember being. So, Kate, I'm challenging you to go out and get some in your generation to join the society, and uh, I'll hold you to it, all right? I, I want to offer very special thanks uh, for the honor just bestowed upon me of becoming a fellow, a, a, an honorary fellow in the Royal Aeronautical Society. And I also want to thank uh, my two colleagues, my two uh, fellow heads of agency, uh, Dr. Parker and Dr. Okamura, who are here. And, and I know they are, like me, well-traveled because we started our week in, uh, in Paris um, and, and some of us went other places. I came in this morning from the uh, Milan Expo uh, which was absolutely spectacular. Had an opportunity to see, at least get a glimpse of the pavilions of Japan and the UK and Kuwait and a hundred and some odd different nations who are there and, and will be there for six months. Uh, and it's absolutely spectacular. So if you happen to have a few days and you want to do something that's really neat, go to Milan and try to take in the, uh, the, the forum there. It, it's very good. You know, for a kid from South Carolina, and I, I still consider myself to be a, a kid from South Carolina, although I'm not real happy about um, the goings-on in my home state right now, but, but for a kid from South Carolina who didn't, didn't even decide that he wanted to be a pilot until fairly late in the game, and I mean really late in the game, um, this is a great honor tonight. And it is an exceptional honor for me to have an opportunity to be associated with people like you who are passionate about aviation and aerospace and, uh, and are forward thinking and trying to make sure that, that we as a people uh, continue to advance the cause of aeronautics. You know, once I, um, once I had the aviation bug, though, it, it took me a while to get it. I came out of the United States Naval Academy after having decided that that's where I wanted to go to college as early as seventh grade. And um, I've been telling this story for the last few days because it, it, every time I think about it, it, it's amazing that I am where I am because uh, I learned about the Naval Academy on television, a program called Men of Annapolis that uh, used to come on when I was a kid, and it talked about life at the Naval Academy, and I fell in love with it. Uh, not for any good reason. I fell in love with it because of the uniform that the midshipmen wore, but most importantly, and most of the young men in here can understand this, because all of the beautiful women from all over the Northeast United States uh, frequently came down to the Naval Academy looking for a, mid a midshipman uh, to prospect as a future husband. Um, it, needless to say, I, I got the best wife in the world, but it did not come from the Northeast United States. I, I was fortunate enough to marry a, a beautiful young lady 
who I have known since we were three years old. Uh, our families were friends in South Carolina. My mom and dad and her mom and dad were teachers together. They had gone to high school together. Our dads had played football together in high school. And, and they introduced us on the beach when we were both three. And as the story goes, my dad turned to her dad and said, save the bow-legged one for Charles. The bow-legged one happened to be the middle girl of three who was uh, feisty and rousting around. And that's who I ended up with. And it was, I was privileged to do that. You know, I, um, I've now flown aircraft of all sorts. And I love flying over our Earth. And it was one of the greatest thrills of my life to pilot a vehicle in space. Um, it, it was something that I had no idea uh, what it would be like. Um, and it is something that I cherish and I look back on every single day, recognizing how incredibly fortunate and blessed I was to do that. It's a great privilege for me right now to lead our NASA team. And uh, I remind everyone that the first A in NASA, the big A, is dedicated to advancements in aeronautics and making aircraft systems around the world safer, greener, and more efficient. Mr. Uh, my friend Okamura-san and I, in our heads of agency meeting, our bilateral meeting in Paris this week, actually brought in our respective uh, aviation heads. And we are expanding the collaboration among the nations of the world in the area of aviation, trying to make sure that as we put in new systems to to, to make aviation safer and more efficient, that we share it around the world so that as the U.S. grows or the U.K. grows or Japan grows, then all the other nations of the world have an opportunity to do the same. My colleagues and I have been able to experience a, a lot of that system on this trip, having been, as I said, to France and to Italy before arriving here. Getting out of the United States, getting out of Dulles, uh, Airport was probably the hardest part of the trip, but, but once we got out of there, people the next night on our flight were not so lucky, uh, but, but it's, we're here. There are still many improvements, obviously, that need to be made, but in a lot of ways, things are vastly better as compared to previous decades. I think it's just a matter of perspective, to be quite honest. When I was here last fall, I spoke to you about what NASA was doing and what we plan to do, and I have some updates for you, because we've been very, very, very busy since then. I want to first thank President of the Royal Aeronautical Society, Martin Broadhurst, again, uh, Martin, for your incredibly uh, gracious invitation to join you and for this opportunity to be here, but most especially for the, the special recognition. I also want to commend this organization for nearly 150 years of remarkable leadership, service, and advocacy on behalf of the global aerospace community. Thanks also to David Parker, uh, David, you and your team at the UK Space Agency for your longstanding partnership with NASA and your love of this society. And to you, Okamura-san, thanks to you for your leadership at JAXA. As NASA continues to make major strides in an unprecedented human journey to Mars, we're pleased that so much of the international community is in agreement about the strategic choices for space in the 21st century. It's my belief that we're entering the golden age of global cooperation in space exploration. As I've said many times, the success of our modern space programs will be judged in large, large part on how well we continue to make space exploration 
about global partnership, particularly since it's clear that no one nation can do it alone and that the benefits to be gained are for all humanity. We've all come a long way since 1866 when this organization was founded and focused on balloons and gliders and heavier than air flight was a serious engineering problem. The Wright brothers' famous first flight occurred in 1903, but it wasn't until 1915 that we in the US formed the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, whose centennial we just celebrated in the US. This organization was NASA's predecessor and research by the NACA's engineers at its world-class laboratories and wind tunnels across America led to fundamental advances in aeronautics that supported victory by Allied forces in World War II, propelled supersonic flight, and laid the foundation for what was to come with the space age when the NACA became NASA in 1958. Of course, aeronautics is still critical to NASA's mission. We like to say NASA is with you when you fly because technologies on which we've worked are on or in virtually every aircraft and every control tower worldwide. Likewise, the United Kingdom has made significant contributions to the world aviation community that include Frank Whittle's design of an early jet engine in 1930, the first flight in 1967 of the vertical short takeoff and landing Harrier jump jet, as well as the West's first commercial supersonic airliner, the Concorde. Together with our international partners, NASA remains committed to transforming global aviation by dramatically reducing its environmental impact, maintaining safety in more crowded skies, and paving the way toward revolutionary aircraft shapes and propulsion systems. We've developed a strategic vision that focuses our aeronautics research efforts to best contribute to the nation's future societal and economic needs. We've defined six strategic focus areas comprising of the following. Safe, efficient growth in global communications, innovation in commercial supersonic aircraft, ultra-efficient commercial vehicles, transition to low-carbon propulsion, real-time system-wide safety assurance and autonomy. We just completed flying two NASA experiments on our Boeing part partners Eco Demonstrator 757 platform, both designed to improve airflow over the surfaces and ultimately reduce drag, reduce fuel consumption, and reduce pollution. One, the active flow control, includes 31 small devices that blow jets of air on the vertical tail to increase airflow, reduce turbulence on the tail, enhance its horizontal comp lift component, and perhaps someday reduce its size, maybe even to zero. There's some hope that it may eliminate the need for a vertical tail altogether. The other involved nonstick coatings applied to the leading edge of wings to help repel bugs and reduce drag. We're conducting complex technical demonstrations with the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States and airline partners to test an integrated suite of technologies that make it possible for more aircraft to arrive safely and on time in the same period of time during high traffic periods. 
Over the last three years, we've transitioned four tools to the FAA, which will be integrated into our air traffic management system. We're also developing decision support tools to help flight controllers keep aircraft separated, maintain throughput, and provide efficient flight paths. At the same time, we remain focused on, future, on our future in space. Building on the legacy of NASA's historic achievements in space, from the Apollo moon landings to launching the Hubble Space Telescope 25 years ago, our sights are now set on a journey to Mars. And we won't get there without the help of our partners in Europe and around the world. While robotic explorers have studied the red planet for more than 40 years, our journey for the human exploration of Mars begins in low Earth orbit aboard the International Space Station, where astronauts from several nations at any given time are helping us learn how to live and work in space for extended periods of time. American astronaut Scott Kelly and cosmonaut Mikhail Kornienko are now well into their historic one-year mission aboard the station, which will provide valuable data about living and working in space for the long run. Our journey continues in many other areas with the arrival next month of the New Horizons spacecraft at Pluto after a journey of nine years and more than three billion miles. That's pretty incredible. From a several foot flight of a glider at Kitty Hawk to a journey to the edge of our solar system. But we're not stopping there. And I do, I would like to take this opportunity to congratulate again uh, our colleagues with the European Space Agency for the incredible, absolutely incredible accomplishment of the landing of uh, the Philae lander on Comet 67P, and I'll let you say the rest of the name. <laughs> we launched five Earth science missions over the past year, the latest of which, Soil Moisture Active Passive, or we call it SMAP, is going to help us track soil moisture on a global scale. Uh, I can tell you that'll be important to farmers and people around the world, but perhaps no more important than to uh, our citizens in the United States in the western part of the country where we're really facing a crisis with, with severe drought. Climate change is the challenge of our generation and will continue to make Earth observation on many levels a priority to provide the data we need to understand our planet and its changes. The James Webb Space Telescope launches in 2018 to a spot about 1.6 million kilometers from Earth, where it will peer beyond our solar system to other galaxies and observe phenomena such as the oldest light in the universe and even the atmospheric makeup of some of the newly discovered exoplanets circling distant stars in other galaxies. Since I last spoke to you, our Orion crew module had its first flight into space, traveling to an altitude of 5,800 kilometers, farther than any spacecraft designed to carry humans has flown in more than 40 years. It performed spectacularly and is now back at NASA where we're studying it and its system intently. The Space Launch System rocket that will eventually carry it continues to move ahead, and we just had the second test of the RS-25 engines that will power its core stage at the Stennis Space Center in, in uh, Mississippi. 
The key to success for all our efforts in aviation and space is found in the cooperation between NASA and our international partners, including the UK Space Agency. In a world rife with geopolitical conflict and uncertainty, these steps taken together in space are a clear demonstration of the benefits to humankind that can be achieved through peaceful global cooperation. That spirit of international cooperation is what will propel us to Mars because it is clear that no one nation can do it alone. And as I said before, the benefits to be gained will be for all humanity because Mars matters, because our home planet most definitely matters, because the ways we travel across our globe matter, and because inspiration the inspiration that all of this provides to future generations matters. I've met a lot of students on this trip, and let me tell you, they're very excited about the things our generation has accomplished on which they're going to build their own milestones. They're the ones who have not lived in a time when humans were not exploring space, some of you sitting in this audience. They're the ones, you're the ones, who are actually going to travel to Mars. Oh, how I wish. I think we can all agree that beyond the scientific and economic benefits of launching into space, of literally leaving this planet, there is something intrinsically unifying about humankind's exploration of the heavens. The partnerships we've forged are going to give more people around the world the opportunity to experience the wonder and, and exhilaration of spaceflight. Through our collaboration and cooperation, many more people will be able to realize the dream of leaving Earth, leaving our home planet, if only for a short time, to float above Earth in microgravity and to see the stars and the, the, the majestic tapestry of the Milky Way unobstructed by the artificial lights and dust of our atmosphere. These citizen space travelers will also help us imagine and realize new benefits that can be brought back to Earth. We're grateful for the strong collaboration between NASA, the UK Space Agency, and the European Space Agency in human spaceflight. Our exploration of Mars and many other planetary and Earth science missions uh, with them have been incredible. Both our countries understand that space exploration is important for every nation on Earth and can only be achieved through international collaboration. The future of space exploration is bright, but it will be up to all of us in this assembly to continue working together on this great adventure. At NASA, we're embarked on an incredible human journey deeper into our solar system than ever before. I fervently hope that you and the Royal Academy of Aeronautical Society as well as all of the citizens of the UK, will join us and celebrate the accomplishment of each new milestone. If we do this together, I'm confident we will improve life on Earth and transform our shared vision of space exploration into a shared reality of unlimited discovery. I'd like to thank you all again for the opportunity to, to address this group and I think if it's okay, uh, can we take some questions? Be more than happy to do so.
Uh, Chris Ewins from the Cranford University uh, Astronautics course. Uh, my question is, uh, rightfully so, you mentioned partnerships for the future of manned spaceflight, especially getting towards Mars. Do you not feel that ITAR restrictions are quite constraining on that in terms of what we as Europeans can offer towards, the, uh, towards NASA and towards American space flights and that what is developed here cannot actually be used again in Europe or the UK once it goes to America? Actually, um, it's not quite that simple. Uh, you know, we've, we deal with ITAR restrictions and INCSNA restrictions all the time, and we generally are able to go to the state, our State Department and other governing bodies and um, find ways to be within, with, in compliance with the law, but to be able to collaborate with our partners. Some of the best examples I can give you are uh, the work that we have jointly done on uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. And James Webb is going to be launched on an Ariane launcher out of Kourou in South America. Or um, work, for example, that we've done with JAXA. Um, we have actually launched in the last few years two critical Earth observing satellites, um, and they have been prepared here. Some work has been done in Japan, brought back and tested in the U.S and then launched on uh, Japanese launch vehicles. So there are ways to, to be in compliance, uh, but, but explain and, and justify and uh, I think allay people's fears that, you know, the, that the concerns that cause ITAR and other regulations to be in place um, might be violated or, or might not be met. Question, question here. Um, hi, my name is Angraj Dwar. I'm an astrophysicist from the University of Leicester. And um, when we launched the Hubble Space Telescope, there was a problem with the lens, and that's where we send the astronauts to fix it. Um, with the JWST, it's going to be in Lagrange 2. So um, if something goes wrong with the JWST in scientific terms, we are screwed. So is there, is there a contingency plan for the JWST as, as to what, what you're going to do if there's a problem with yeah. it? Uh, I, you know, we talk about this all the time. Is, is JWST going to be uh, serviceable? And right now the answer is no. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons that that answer is no. Technologically, you know, the only thing we could do right now would be to put a grapple fixture on it in hopes that technology will advance to the point that we could, we could touch JWST, which is an, an incredibly sophisticated cryogenically controlled telescope that if you go, I am told, you know, and touch it, then you've pretty much destroyed it right there. You know, we, we worried about Hubble. At, at one time, some of you, you're too young, but, but some of you in this audience may remember um, that because I was on the, on the deploy mission, that one of the contingencies for Hubble was either to bring it back if we had problems during the deploy or if we had problems subsequently to go get it and bring it back. And what we found later was, boy, that would have been really the wrong thing to do because that would have destroyed Hubble. Even though we had the space shuttle then in which you could make a pretty smooth landing, but we just found later that um, it, it would not have been feasible to do that. One of the big things that people are worried about as a result of Hubble's experience with the spherical aberration on the primary mirror is we miss the focus or something. I think most of you who know about JWST know that it, it's 18 segmented mirrors in the primary mirror and then a separate one that makes up the secondary mirror. 
Um, we spent about $2 billion before we even started building JWST in technology development. There is not very much in JWST that is not brand new technology. One of the critical components was what we call the backplane, and it is the, it's the structure on which these 18 uh, adjustable primary mirror segments sit. You know, in, when you're at a Lagrange point where you're operating at minus, I guess, at 40 Kelvin, I think that's where we are, uh, in order to allow the segments to self-focus, uh, and I'm going to get way out of my league here if I try to explain how it does it, so I'm not. Uh, but each segment has the ability to independently move itself. It's got actuators along the back so it can, it can move in all axes plus in and out. So when it first gets to La La the Lagrange point, gets stabilized at, at its operating temperature and everything, then the segments will one by one uh, adjust based on sighting a known object in distant space. Uh, the backplane had to be uh, have a coefficient of expansion of near zero so that it would not give, would not move at all so that when the actuators start pushing on the segments, everything worked. So that was the way that, that the team accommodated for the fear that we might find something like we did with Hubble where uh, we had a perfectly ground mirror, but it was just ground to the wrong prescription. And, you know, so you had to go and put, put glasses on, on the instruments and, or in the telescope itself. So, you know, my, my understanding is that there are lots of contingencies that the telescope can do for itself. But right now, no plan for it to be serviceable. I have to admit, there are people in my, in my headquarters who keep trying to sneak a uh, grapple fixture on it. <laughs> they may win yet. Yeah. Yes? I think there was a hand went up over there. Acom, um, we, we've done some of the, we've been involved in some of the uh, space space facilities of NASA in the America. We're, we're currently involved in the, the discussion over the UK spaceport, which is quite interesting. I just wondered, what's your take on the private uh, space industry, and what are I mean, what do you think are the most exciting emerging trends, and yeah. where do you think it's going? I think if you look at what NASA has done over the past six years, at least since I've been the NASA administrator. Uh, you'd have to believe that we're bullish on private commercial space, if you will. We have invested a lot in it. Uh, we've taken a lot of risks. We've taken a lot of beatings, uh, to put it bluntly, for our decision to, uh, you know, to phase out of the shuttle and, and depend on uh, American industry to provide transportation to low Earth orbit. And, and it, you know, for me, it was a pretty simple decision and it was financial as much as anything else, um, we just couldn't afford to continue to operate shuttle at its great expense and go explore. Uh, you will find people all over the world today. I get letters and I get cards and I get messages every single day uh, it, reminding me of how wrong my decision was uh, and that all I have to do is bring shuttle back and go with some of the original plans for the space transportation system and everything will be taken care of, you know. And we don't have to depend on anyone else to go to Mars. We can do it all alone. So um, I, I'm, to be quite honest, I'm, I am respectful and mindful of those opinions. I just don't agree at all. Um, and I do, I, I am passionate about 
involvement and, and facilitating the success of commercial space, of non-government space. Uh, it's really important. Um, you ask me what are some of the things that I'm excited about. Um, I'm actually excited about some of the, some of the competitors that haven't won sometime. You know, the, the, the good thing about what we're doing is it's competition at its best. The bad thing is we have a limited budget, and I don't say it's small, I didn't say that, so please don't, don't think I'm, I'm quibbling about it, having a small budget. It's a, it's a, it's a healthy budget, um, but it is limited. And so we have had to non-select some really, really promising uh, capabilities. And my hope is that we can continue to work with them, continue to fund them at a small level so that they continue their development and their technological advancement so that at some point um, the reason that we're trying to help them will come to fruition, and that is there will be commercial needs for what they do. That's, that's the big thing. I mean, you know, expend, extending the International Space Station, David and, and Okamura-san can, can tell you that one of the critical reasons for the U.S., and I think for them, to extend the International Space Station to 2024 is because it gives uh, commercial entities 10 more years to demonstrate the viability of a commercial space market. Uh, if we had ended shuttle in 2016, like, I mean, not shuttle, the International Space Station in 2016, as it would have happened under normal circumstances, we don't have commercial crew yet. And so it's doubtful that industry would have even attempted to invest in commercial crew. And there are very healthy investments monetarily on the part of our commercial partners in commercial crew. The other thing is we're going to Mars, and that's hard. And we don't know probably we probably don't know much more than we do know. We have, uh, you know, David and Okamura-san, and I talked about this in our, in our bilateral meetings this, this week. At NASA, we have two big matrices that I look at all the time. One is a matrix of technological risks. There are things like uh, life support systems, environmental control units, water recycling, atmospheric control, in-space propulsion, uh, just those are challenges that we haven't completely met yet. And we believe that it's going to take us until about 2024, 2025-ish, to get to the point where we have re you know, reduced significantly or, or retired those risks. On the human research side, bone loss, muscle atrophy, we now have a new phenomena. We find that it's not new. We just didn't know about it. Uh, called increased intracranial pressure that squeezes down on the optic nerve and causes a loss of visual, uh, a slight loss of visual acuity in astronauts, in some permanent, uh, in others temporary. Um, spatial disorientation on the part of some people. And we figure that these risks, many of them have already been retired. We understand bone loss. We understand muscle mass loss. We understand vestibular issues. And we've solved a lot of those problems with combination of exercise, diet, and medication. So, but it's going to take us, you know, until 2024 to retire all those risks. And, and what we are saying now as heads of agency is it's now time, if we're serious about collaborating on exploration, it's now time for us to start comparing notes. Everybody has what they consider to be risks. Let's look at each other's matrix and make sure they're the same risk. Dave, David and Okamura-san, you got anything you want to add to that part? Okay, yeah. <laughs>
You know, I, um, we're, I'm excited about it, and I'm really excited about commercial entities. I haven't even talked about uh, suborbital uh, commercial space. You know, we don't, we're not invested in it to the level that we are orbital commercial space right now because that's where our need is. But we also, we NASA, have a need for the availability of suborbital space capability because we don't have a vomit comet anymore. You know, the, the zero-G airplane. And we retired it because we saw suborbital commercial capability coming along where you can get much longer periods of microgravity uh, in a probably better controlled environment than we were doing with a KC-135 or a DC-9. So we're patiently waiting, and, and I think it will come. You know, the Virgin Galactics, the uh, other companies, so looking forward to it. Yes. Um, hi, I'm Lionel Ward. I'm a student in UCL. Um, I'd like to ask you about um, after the ISS retires, um, what uh, is the future of humans in space? Yeah. Um, are we still going to be spending a lot of time in low Earth orbit? Uh, does not, is it meaningful to make another big station there? Um, obviously, in long-term, planning to send humans to Mars, but are we going to go beyond low Earth, yeah. low Earth orbit, um, the moon or elsewhere? David, you want to take this one? <laughs> you know, it, it, your questions are very astute. And to show you how good I think they are, they're the same questions that, that guys like Okamura-san, David, and me talk about all the time when we get together. Space station has a finite lifetime. Right now, we all believe it's 2028 from an engineering perspective. So it doesn't make any difference how much we need it. We just can't envision a way that we can uh, safely and engineering-wise get it to, to survive beyond 2028. So there has to be something. There will always be a need for facilities in low Earth orbit. Um, who's going to do that? You are. The reason I'm bullish on commercial space is because our hope is that over time, over these next nine, ten years, people will utilize the International Space Station, will find out that, man, you know, we can get a lot done here, and that there will be entrepreneurs and industry and academia who will go off. You don't... You don't need another uh, football pitch size space station. Um, you know, for what we're going to need in the future, I think the size is excessive. Um, you know, but, but we do need facilities. One of the things that I think you want to do, if you're a person who's into a field like pharmaceuticals, you don't want people around. What you do not want, you do not want astronauts exercising and floating around and bumping because even though it doesn't seem like station is moving, it puts little micro-G spikes into the facility, and it really upsets the apple cart uh, if they're trying to grow uh, a, an experimental drug or they're trying to do protein crystal growth or something else that needs a quiescent state. Materials processing, trying to produce the world's most pure semiconductor material. Uh, you put humans on there, and they jump on the treadmill, and what was going to be the most perfect semiconductor, uh, you know, goes away. So you get, a, you get a good product, but not the product that you go to space to do. So I think we are going to identify, we are already identifying, uh, critical needs for smaller facilities, uh, you know, where we can go to human tend, we can go just to put something and come back and pick it up now and then, like, like, a, beekeep like a beekeeper does, you know, the hives. Uh, beekeeper doesn't go out there and play around with the hives. 
the beekeeper puts the bees in there and watches the calendar and goes out and collects honey when it's time. Uh, you might be a beekeeper on orbit, you know? Not really, but who knows, though? Bees have survived there. I, you know. So um, we will have to phase out of the International Space Station. But what we don't want to do, and we do talk about this, we don't want to set an artificial deadline. We want to say, why do we need station? And how long do we need it? And when you stop identifying critical needs for station, it's time to let it go. And it's time to deorbit it uh, and put it in the ocean some, somewhere safely and then transition to other. You asked about humans, though. Humans are never, ever, ever coming out of space. They're going to be in low Earth orbit doing commercial kinds of things. People like us in space agencies, we're transitioning, we're beginning, we're making the plans right now to transition back into the area around the moon, to cislunar space. So if you want to look at, you know, we, we like to talk about our journey to Mars. And our journey to Mars is now divided into three pieces. It's being Earth-reliant, which is where we are today, operating on the International Space Station in low Earth orbit over and over and over again. We've been there for 50 years. It's now time to move on. And so by the end of this decade, we hope to be able to begin the transition out to the next area, which is, we call it the proving zone. So we're going to go out and we're going to spend humanity's time in orbit around the moon. What is ideal about that is that some of our partners, unlike us, are really, we're really passionate about getting to Mars. And so that's our number one focus, and that's where we're putting the bulk of our funds. Some of our partners really want to go with human missions back to the moon. And if you're, you know, if you're somebody like me who has been around long enough um, and knows what it's like to see somebody do something but not do it yourself, you can understand other countries' passion about wanting to go to the moon. Nobody's done that except the United States. So for, for other countries, that's a big deal. You know, the second time, that's okay. Third time, that's okay. Every time somebody goes, it's going to be a big deal because it's hard. And so as many nations as can say, we have now put a human on the moon, that's going to be a big deal. Uh, and when I talk to my partners, I say, look, we're going to be operating for 10 years or so in cislunar space. We're going to have a vehicle that can take care of you, me, a lot of other things. If you come up with a lander and you want to send a crew down to the surface of the moon for a month, two months, something like that, we're going to help you. I just want one thing in return, one seat. <laughs> you know, one seat for an American crew member. Now, my friends over here, they chuckle because that's the, that's the way they are now. They say, all we want is one more seat. So we're, we're always bickering and bartering back and forth about how many seats people are going to get. That, we'll never stop doing that, I don't think. You know. But anyway, so that's what we're going to do. And then in the 2030s, when we've utilized cislunar space to do what we're doing today in low Earth orbit, technologically and from a human performance, human survival perspective, then we can safely say, okay, We've been talking about this forever. It's time to go. And we're going to strike off for Mars, and that's a journey. That's eight months from home planet right now. Um, I mentioned in-space propulsion, game-changing in-space propulsion. If we're lucky and we get some miracle, somebody may come up with an incredible nuclear form or some other form of propulsion that gets us to Mars in four months. Man, does that help. 
because it significantly reduces the length of exposure to radiation. Uh, it does all kinds of things. Gets rid of a lot of the medical concerns you have. Psychological stress. Uh, it's going to be hard on a human being spending eight months, you know, inside something, even with crewmates. Uh, when you look back at the end of the first month and the place that you knew is home, it looks like everything else out there. You know, we're accustomed to, uh, to the International Space Station where the crew floats into the cupola, looks out the window, and there's this big planet. When you go to Mars, it's going to be about a month, maybe, maybe if, if that long. And the crew's going to look out the window that's facing toward Earth, and they're going to go, ooh, which, which of those dots is home? Because Earth is going to look like a distant star. And, and they're going to want to talk to their kids, and they'll, you know, break out the computer. And the fastest that we can make light travel today is pretty slow. <laughs> In relative terms, when you want to talk to your child right now, you know, that your wife told you two days ago is sick. And you're trying to say, okay, how is he or she, knowing that it's going to take anywhere from seven minutes to half an hour, you know, for the message to transit back and forth. Those are psychological issues that we haven't even begun to deal with yet. But they're things we're going to have to tackle before we say we're ready to send humans to another planet. Okay. Maybe a couple more questions before we quit. Uh, Ray Ward, British Interplanetary Society, space buff from way back. Earlier today, by pure chance, I, I had a rather odd coincidence and a rather moving coincidence. I'm a retired librarian and I went on a visit to King's College to see the archives uh, organised by a retired librarians group. And one of the items was the minutes of the Maxwell Society, named after James Clark Maxwell. And they had the minutes of a talk by Arthur C. Clarke, someone who I later had the great honour and pleasure to meet. On uh, Tuesday, the 25th of November. Hmm, what year was this? It didn't say the year. I'll look back at the front. Tuesday, 25th of November, 1947 which happens to be two days after I was born. Um, and I read the minutes, and then one of the things Clark mentioned was the possibility of, uh, of uh, using uh, nuclear power for space. Yeah. But uh, as I say, I later met Clark, I read his works, and, uh, and um, whatever happened to his uh, vision of... Uh, bases on the moon by the end of the 20th century and people on Mars by the early years of the 21st century and so on. Uh, it now seems almost incredible that America went from its first man in space, a 15-minute suborbital hop, to men on the moon in little more than eight years. I mean, uh, we are running out of time. Can you get on to have your we, question, uh, please? Have we lost the vision? No, and I think what we're talking about tonight, it, I, the irony of what you said is exactly what I've been saying, is, uh, you know, we have played with this for long enough. Uh, it is now time to get serious, and it is time, you cannot, no one nation can do it alone. And I think one of the differences in the past, when I came into the astronaut office in 1980, when I, I moved from Patuxent River, Maryland to Houston, Texas with my family uh, to become a NASA astronaut, 
my dream at that time, my vision, what I really thought was going to happen, that's how naive I was, I'll tell you. I was going to fly on shuttle a couple of times, and then I was going to go to the moon, and then before I left the astronaut office, I was going to go to Mars. And the pace, we had not flown the shuttle yet. You got to remember that, okay? This was 1980. We were supposed to fly the space shuttle in 1978. We had some bumps along the way. But when we got started, I mean, we really went going gangbusters. Um, but still, at our best year, we were not doing what we thought we could do. But we still had a vision of going back to the moon and putting humans on Mars. Um, I think the big difference today, people ask me all the time, how can you afford to do that on an $18 billion budget? The difference of today is we have commercial space. We have commercial partners. We have academic partners. We have international partners, and no one ever considered that in the past. And we are now willing and beginning to put funds toward uh, you know, reinvestigating and re-energizing nuclear propulsion. So I think that's, that's the big difference. I don't think the vision's gone at all. Uh, what, is, what, is, what is lacking is willpower on the part of the people of our respective nations. That's our job. That, that's what I get paid for. My job is to inspire people in the United States of America and around the world to believe that we can do what we say we can do. And if I fail at that, you're absolutely right. We'll be, I will, people will look at my, my comments here and they'll say, hmm, 18th of June. What year was that? And they'll look somewhere. <laughs> you know. And, and, but what I, and, I, and I mean this in all sincerity. I'm, I, am, I am passionate about this. I have three beautiful granddaughters. The people that I do not want to say 18th of June, 2015, what did my granddad not do? That bothers me. You know, I don't care, to be quite honest, to be very blunt about everything else. I do care about the kind of world that I leave for my grandkids. And I, I want them to be able to dream of going to Mars and then realize that dream. And it can only happen, as I said in my remarks, if we pull together and we dedicate ourselves to this and we demand it of our governments. I, I tell people all the time, how do we do this? We vote. Now that, you know, that may seem trivial to some of you because you're from countries that, that generally vote. Uh, I come from a country that, boy, voter turnout, what is that? <laughs> and, and we complain. So we've gotta, we have to tell our governments what we want to do and the direction in which we want them to go. And we have to convince them that it is critically important to invest in, in research and development, in technology, Otherwise, we go stagnant and we fall behind. Uh, and I'm excited about where we are in the United States right now because in spite of all else, uh, we're continuing to make steady progress. And I think we'll get there. I really do. Thanks very much, though. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email 
or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.